0: Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 15, The Hex Migration. Some of the most incredible sights in the natural world are of mass animal migration. Think of those herds of wildebeest, great black behemoths stretching as far as the eye can see across the Serengeti, or the great monarch butterfly migration, millions of beautiful orange and black insects fluttering thousands of kilometres on the most delicate of gossamer wings. Well, we're not talking about any of that. This is a podcast about birds, and I'll be damned! if any other animal is going to besmirch my brand. We're talking about avian migration, which isn't always as visually spectacular. Hey, a lot of them migrate at night, so are never seen at all, but it is nonetheless extraordinary. Some of these tiny featherballs undertake migrations that span the length of the earth. Length of the earth? Arc of the earth? Circumference? Yeah, yeah, yes. Conference. we'll do that again. Undertake migrations that span the circumference of the Earth. But not all birds do it. And which birds do do it? And why and how do they do do it? Well, today we're going to dig into the doo-doo and try to understand just what is avian migration. Now, this subject is big and I am going to be moving fast, so pay attention, watch me for the changes, and try to keep up. Let's start with a definition of migration so we know we're all talking about the same thing. After all, these birds aren't ten-pound poms, giving up on their homeland, striking out across the sea, and gambling at all to start a new life on some distant Aussie shore, never to return. No, no. Animal migration is a type of movement, going from one place to another. You know, like… what happens when things move. But it's special. This isn't just any old motion, for example. Some birds are nomadic, they travel from place to place, but it's a bit haphazard. Albatrosses spend most of their life on the wing, riding the sea currents and patrolling the ocean, only returning to land to breed. But we don't call this movement migration. The same is true of waterfowl, like pelicans and ducks that turn up when an ephemeral lake fills with water after a flood. This is a mass movement of animals, but it isn't a migration because it isn't predictive. It doesn't happen in the same way every year. These birds just cruise around following their nose. That's what makes them nomads. nose nose-mads. nosemads. I'll show myself out. And then there are birds that are called facultive migrants. This is different again. A facultive migrant only moves when conditions are rough. For example, pine siskins, yet another small sparrow like bird, are perfectly happy staying in the one place all year round. But if one year there's a lack of pine cones for them to feed on, they will choose to migrate in search of greener, pineier, conier pastures, uh, forests. And that is the key difference. A facultative migrant actively chooses to migrate or not. The birds that we're interested in today, the obligative migrants, are hardwired to leave. They don't have a choice. For them, migration is an obligation to be undertaken annually, biannually even. And so, a true definition for migration in birds is a seasonal movement from one location to another undertaken twice a year as environmental conditions change. For migratory birds, we usually say they have a breeding ground and a wintering ground. And just bear in mind, bear in mind, that's a strange turn of phrase. Why do bears get a monopoly on that saying? (gasps) Oh no, another animal besmirching my brand. And just bear in mind that when they arrive at their wintering ground, it will be summer there, not winter. It's winter in their breeding ground when they're in their wintering ground, which is where it's summer. Yep, I think I said that just about as clearly as I could. No, I don't want to do another take. Normally, these migrations take place with the birds wintering closer to tropical latitudes, and they're moving either north or south to take advantage of summer conditions at those higher or lower latitudes, the Arctic or Antarctic region, as the case may be. Of course, there are exceptions, and don't worry, we'll be looking at some exceptions. But the question as to why birds migrate is pretty easy to answer. As with all behaviour in the natural world, it arises because there is an evolutionary advantage. Let's think about this from the perspective of a willow warbler. This is what most twitchers would call a little brown bird. They're a small, nondescript brown bird of the open European woodlands. But more striking than their drab appearance is their delightful song, somewhat fancifully described as being like a light breeze peeling off a lady's shawl. Roll the audio! I mean, uh, sure. They can be found in Ireland and the UK, through France, Scandinavia, and into the Russian tundra and Siberia. But that's only through the northern summer. As winter sets in, these little fellows hightail it out of there and head for the warmer climes of sub-Saharan Africa. And it's pretty obvious why they do it – winter in Siberia, you're gonna have a bad time freezing temperatures, snow-covered land, no food, no nothing but an icy death, no thank you. But maybe the question isn't so much why do they leave in the winter, it's more why do they turn up in the summer? I mean, Africa doesn't freeze in the winter, it stays more or less habitable the whole year round. So what pulls the willow warbler in? Well, quite simply, it's the explosion of life that takes place in these northern latitudes during their summer. For a little bird, these can be incredibly fertile lands, just not all the time. By taking advantage of migration, it means a bird can always be where the food is, and they can access a resource that is otherwise off-limits to non-migratory animals. Anything that doesn't undertake a migration, or can't survive a harsh winter, can't get those resources. Migration, though, means a bird can. And, yeah, in a nutshell, that's what drives migratory behaviour. Okay, so we understand why, but now let's talk about who migrates, because not all birds do. In fact, the majority of birds don't. Only between 20 and 40% of birds migrate, and these birds tend to be native of those extreme northern or southern latitudes. those that live in more mild or tropical locations don't tend to migrate, they don't need to, the weather and resources stay pretty consistent the whole year round. And it just so happens that the majority of bird diversity occurs at the tropics. I won't go into why, celestial mechanics, but it's basically because that's where the greatest abundance of food tends to be. Now. Among the birds that migrate, we have representatives from just about every bird lineage. Tiny songbirds and hummingbirds migrate, cranes, cuckoos, hawks and eagles, vultures all migrate, game birds, ducks and geese and shorebirds of all variety have their migration too. And then there are some oddball exceptions as well. Parrots, which tend to live in the tropics, aren't migratory as a general rule. But there are two species in Australia that do, the orange-bellied parrot and the swift parrot which both move between Tasmania and the Australian mainland, and then there is the thick-billed parrot of Mexico who also migrates, and uh, that's it, just those three. Now, once we have a bird that wants to migrate, the next question is how are they going to do it? And yes, yes. They fly, you're very clever, well done. But how about you sit down and shut up before I take my- For some birds, this is less of a challenge because they don't move all that far. There is a special kind of migration called altitudinal. Mountain-dwelling birds will migrate up and down a mountain throughout the year, following the snow line as it recedes and then expands. These birds might only travel a couple of kilometres from their wintering to breeding grounds. The dusky grouse is a funny kind of- chicken-like bird native to North America. They have little air sacs on their throat and feathers that flap open to reveal the sacs during their mating rituals. They inflate the air sacs and then flick back their feathers to reveal a patch of bright red skin. I'm told it's terribly romantic. But these odd birds are also the owner of the world's shortest recorded migration. Some will only move 500 metres up and down their mountains in the Rockies hardly a migration at all. Some of them don't even bother flying, they just walk down the mountain a bit at a time. So, yeah, not all birds fly for their migration. Don't you feel the fool now. But other birds will travel hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of kilometres, and yes, those birds do need to fly. And when it comes to their journey, there are three strategies they might deploy. Some birds hop, others skip, and yet others jump. See, they're still not flying. Nah, I'm kidding. The hop, the skip, and the jump refers to how far and how many stops a bird might make before they reach their final destination. Hoppers make lots of short flights with frequent stops, usually daily, to rest and eat. Skippers make longer flights and might only stop once or twice at key refueling places. And jumpers do the whole migration in one single flight. For some examples let's take the northern wheat ear. So named because they're no bigger than an ear of wheat. Actually that's a lie because they have ears that look like wheat. That's another lie. But it's probably more believable than the real reason. In a strange twist the name wheat ear has nothing to do with either wheat or ears. The name actually translates as white butt and yeah they do have white butts. So anyway some of these little guys travel between Kenya and Greenland, they have the longest recorded migration of any songbird and for such a tiny little fellows, they really do have an unbelievably long journey to make. But these ear-sized birds don't make that trip in one go, rather they fly only at night when conditions are calmer, making a series of tiny hops over a number of days and weeks, feeding along the way until they reach their final destination. This is how most small songbirds travel. Birds that skip make longer flights, flying maybe hundreds of kilometres to staging grounds along their route. When they reach a staging ground, they may settle in for a couple of weeks to rest and feed up again before they make the next skip. Many shorebirds travel in this way, take the adorable spoon-billed sandpiper. These fine fellows are unique among the sandpipers because of their, well, spoon-shaped bill. They feed by sweeping their bill through shallow water in tidal and mudflat zones, filtering out lava and other tiny invertebrates that hide in the water. The spoonbills breeding grounds are in Russia, along the Bering coast, and they winter down in Southeast Asia. But along the way, they will stop at staging grounds in South Korea and China to refuel. For birds that migrate in this way, they are incredibly reliant on these staging grounds. Without them, they can't complete their journeys, and they tend to come down with a case of the deadsies. Sadly, the spoonbill is one of the rarest migratory birds, and one of the major reasons is because of the land reclamation in China and South Korea, as these nations reform their coastlines for industrial use. When the world's largest dike, not an insult, it's a top of seawall, at Seamen-gun in South Korea was constructed, it wiped out 400 square kilometres of estuary that was one of the most important staging points in Asia. Previously, this land had supported some 500,000 migrating birds each year, but now, well, it's a farm. Maybe we should move on. The last type of migrator are the jumpers. These are the ultra marathon flyers, the birds that take off and go nonstop until they reach their final destination. The all-time champ when it comes to jumping is the bar-tailed godwit. They're a stocky little shorebird with stumpy legs and an oversized bill that they use to probe the sand for buried worms and tiny crustaceans. They breed in Alaska and winter on the other side of the world, in New Zealand, and to get from one side of the globe to the other, they do it in one non-stop flight. These little birds, they fly straight across the Pacific Ocean, a distance of over 10,000 kilometres in nine days of non-stop flying. That's bonkers! How does a bird, something no bigger than a football, fly non-stop for nine days clear across the Pacific Ocean? Well, like any athlete in peak physical condition, the first step is to fatten up. And there are many options for dangerously underweight birds like yourself. I recommend a slow, steady gorging process, and you'll want to focus on the neglected food groups, such as the whipped group, the congealed group, and the chocotastic. Of course, I kid, but only just. Them birds do gorge. This is called Hypophal, hyperphagia. Fa- 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 this is called hyperphagia, hyperphagia or excessive eating. Although I suppose if it's a physiological necessity in order to survive, can we really call it excessive? Either way, a bird preparing for migration is going to want to pack on the pounds. They will eat and eat and eat, which is kinda strange when you think about it. It would be the equivalent of a human athlete preparing for a marathon by becoming obese. If you were to take a blood sample of a bird ready for migration, a human doctor would deduce that they were obese, diabetic, and liable to drop dead from a heart attack at any second, and yet this would be a bird in peak physical form. This is because the physiological process of how a bird metabolises and burns fat is very different from mammals who primarily rely on carbohydrates for energy. During these feasting periods, their stomach and digestive organs expand to accommodate an influx of food, but when it's time to leave, these organs will shut down and shrivel up, After all, if you're about to fly 10000 thousand kilometres, the last thing you want is to carry any extra weight. A migrating bird is all about creating efficiency wherever it can. So step one is to get fat. The next step is to find your way. And again, they want to do it in the most efficient way possible. And that being the case, there is maybe something unexpected about how a bird migrates. You're probably familiar with the old expression, as the crow flies. Yeah, At the risk of explaining the obvious, the saying is used to describe the straight line distance between two points, the thinking being that birds don't have to deal with any of those pesky terrestrial obstructions and can just fly in a straight line from where they are to where they want to go, topography be damned. But when we look at the flight path of migrating birds, this isn't what we find. Rather than taking what would appear to be the shortest straight line route on a map, they often go hundreds or thousands of kilometres out of their way on convoluted flight paths. Why do they do this? Do they just not know the quickest way? Have they gotten lost? Not at all. The migrating bird ain't no one's fool. If you've ever rode a bike, you know it's a lot easier to pedal with the wind at your back than in your face. It's the same for a bird. As much as they can, they will try to migrate with the prevailing winds at their back. That means at low and high latitudes a bird will follow the winds and go in a more westerly direction, while at middle latitudes they'll change tack and go with the winds again as they shift to the east. The result can be that they might take a more roundabout route, but they end up saving time and energy in the process but there are other reasons for non-straight line paths. For migrating raptors like hawks, eagles, and vultures, they make use of rising thermal columns of hot air. Rather than wasting energy with all that flapping nonsense, they will seek out pockets of hot air that are rising high into the atmosphere. They swoop into these columns, open their wings, and ride the hot air to the top. Then all they do is glide down, covering large distances without doing any work, just jumping from column to column. So while they don't have to do much work flapping, it does mean that they have to go where the columns are, which isn't always a straight line route. Smaller birds also try to limit the time that they spend on the open ocean. The last thing you want is to run out of puff halfway across the Mediterranean, fall into the sea and get eaten by a tuna. Do tuna live in the Mediterranean? do they eat birds? Questions for a different podcast. Coming soon, fish of the week. Not really coming soon. No other animal will besmirch my brand. What this means is that, again, birds, especially the non-aquatic types, will often go in a roundabout way to avoid long oceanic crossings. This leads to many birds being funneled across a couple of key land bridges. The Strait of Gibraltar is a famous one, where each year, millions of European birds will converge to make their Mediterranean crossing at this one narrow spot to minimise their time at sea. This is part of the East Atlantic flyway, and you can think of a flyway as a mighty river in the sky of flapping birds that has been fed by smaller tributaries from across the whole continent. All across Europe, up into Greenland and even into Russia, Birds will follow their own migratory paths, gradually converging together at key crossings. This converging process is what creates a flyway. There are 11 recognised flyways across the world, 5 in America and 6 across Asia, Africa, Europe and Australia. But of course, there are always some birds that do their own thing. Take the tiny ruby-throated hummingbird. Each year these little South American jewels travel between Mexico and the continental United States. Many other birds that do this same journey join one of the major flyways and travel overland. But not the ruby-throated hummingbird. These jacked-up sugar junkies fly down to the Gulf of Mexico, where they spend several weeks putting on the kilos. Or rather I guess when you weigh as much as a ping pong ball you're really only putting on the grams. Either way, these guys double their weight, and then in one single flight, they strike out across the Gulf of Mexico. That's 800 kilometers of open ocean for a bird that could fit in the palm of your hand. It takes them around 20 hours, and when they arrive in the Yucatan Peninsula, the first thing they do is land on a flower and hit the nectar. Normally, a hummingbird's metabolism is so high they need to feed at least every 10 to 15 minutes. Because they live mainly on sugar, their body burns it almost instantly. On any given day, they will eat at least half of their weight in pure sugar. So to somehow last 20 hours on the open ocean with nary a flower in sight is quite a feat. You certainly wouldn't want to get lost out there among the featureless expanse of nothingness. Even an extra half hour would surely mean exhaustion, another watery death, and being devoured by a tuna. Tuna in the Gulf of Mexico? No? Mediterranean? I assume they live somewhere and eat birds, like what else would they eat? But smirch. The point is, in these situations, accurate navigation can mean the difference between life and death. Crossing the Gulf of Mexico is one thing, but so many of these birds are crossing the globe and finding their way without GPS or a map. Considering I've gotten lost in my own suburb, how does a bird get from Siberia to the Serengeti? Well, when it comes to birds, there is no such thing as one-size-fits-all. Some birds need a little guidance. Large birds like swans learn their migratory path by accompanying their parents on the first journey who show them the way. This became something of a prickly problem for a group of incredibly rare whooping cranes. I cannot overstate how close these birds came to extinction. In 1940, there were just 28 known individuals in the wild. The decades-long conservation effort to save them is a story worthy of its own podcast, but for now I only want to talk about how they solved the problem of teaching these birds how to migrate. You see... When you set up a captive breeding program, the problem you run into is that you don't have an adult bird to show the young ones where to go. The solution, they trained the birds to follow an ultralight aircraft from their breeding grounds in Wisconsin to their wintering grounds in Florida. The program was called Operation Migration, and it ran from 1994 to 2016, and also helped orphaned swans and geese find their way as well. Just how successful this operation was is still… debated, but we'll save that story for another time. The point I want to make is, yes, some young birds learn how to find their way thanks to guidance from a parent. But for many birds, in fact, the majority of birds, this isn't the case. Take the red phalarope. I don't know if I'm saying that right, it's got a PH in the front of it like it's a PH fat bird. Phalarope? That's something like that. Anyway, they're another shorebird in the sandpiper family that breeds up in the Arctic Circle before wintering in Argentina and southern Africa. Now, these birds are famous for their gender role reversal. As you well know, for birds, it is almost always the male who is brightly plumed, while the female tends to be a bit bland. And I have to say, almost always because of these pesky phalaropes. For them, it is the females who sport the bright bluff-red plumes, it is the females who fight over the males, defend a territory, and then it is the males who take on the domestic duties of incubating and caring for the chicks by themselves. Just why exactly a gender role reversal has happened in these birds, I don't know. If I ever get around to doing an episode on mating practices, we'll dive into them properly, but right now we're talking about migration. When it comes to the Phalarope, they have a strict policy of keeping the genders and the generations segregated. It isn't a great political platform, but it seems to work for them. After mating and laying their eggs, the females are the first to leave. Well actually, I lie, the first birds to leave are the adults who are unable to breed. The Lonely Hearts Band Club goes first in dejected rejection, but I guess they can commiserate with each other on the flight. The second wave of departees are the females, after they have laid their eggs. The males then spend about four weeks incubating the eggs and tending to the young before they skive off leaving the babies to their own devices. Thankfully, the Phalarope are precocious little fellows, and can more or less feed and defend themselves straight after hatching. After three weeks, they're also able to fly, and here the young take off without any parental supervision and find their way to their wintering grounds just fine. The destination, the navigation, the duration and direction of flight, all of that information is hardwired into their genetic makeup. They just have an innate understanding of what they have to do and where they have to go. And this is the case for many birds. It's rather extraordinary that behaviour like navigation to an unknown destination could be purely genetically inherited. What is going through their brain the first time they do it? I don't know why I'm leaving this place where I was born, but it seems like a good idea. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm sure I'll know it when I see it. Guards have that kind of confidence in life. But I guess they've got a lot of inbuilt gadgets that prevent them from getting lost. While in flight, birds use a number of strategies to stay on course. Many birds can sense the Earth's magnetic field, and they use their internal compass to stay orientated and headed in the right direction. Other birds use landmarks, both terrestrial and celestial, especially those birds that fly at night. They'll use the moon and stars, like the seafarers of old, to guide their way. And not only do they have an innate sense of direction, but they also have an innate internal clock as well, because without fail a bird always knows exactly when it's time to prepare for their migration. Now, this one is maybe less remarkable. We can probably spitball a couple of environmental cues that would tip a bird off as to what time of year it is. For those birds coming from high latitudes, as the season changes, there is a noticeable change in temperature. And as summer turns into autumn, their food supply will gradually alter as well, no doubt signalling what time of year It is, hell, if they can use the stars to navigate, maybe they can even count the days and tell time that way, who knows? Well, there are all possibilities, but none of them are the true answer. In fact, a bird calibrates its internal clock solely by the amount of daylight they're exposed to. This is known as the photoperiod. As the earth trundles around the sun, the amount of sunlight a certain place receives will change through the year thanks to the earth's axial tilt, with it being far more noticeable at the poles than at the equator. We don't have to go into celestial mechanics, but as the amount of daylight changes, it triggers hormones in the bird, prompting them to molt and grow new feathers, prompting them to breed, to start fattening up for the journey, and finally prompting them to leave. Turns out sunlight is the trigger that controls almost all of a bird's behaviour. Amusingly, for many of the birds that breed in the high arctic, they will never experience a winter in their life, they just bounce between one summer and the next. The most extreme bird in this category is the arctic tern. These elegant white and grey birds have bright red feet and beaks and a black cap of feathers on their head. But they are renowned for having the longest migration of any animal. Each year they fly from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back. So I suppose technically they're both Arctic and Antarctic terns. Although there is another tern specifically known as the Antarctic tern that looks almost identical but never leaves the southern hemisphere. Ah, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned it, I feel I've just muddied the waters. We can cut this. From pole to pole, a one way journey for the Arctic tern would be about 19,000 kilometres. But as we have learned in this episode, as the tern flies is anything but a straight line. While they do migrate out to sea, they still more or less follow the coastline of the continents and take meandering courses. What does that mean? Well, in a normal year, an Arctic tern might cover 70,000 kilometres in their round trip migration. The real superstars can clock up to 80. Because they spend so much of their lives bathed in arctic summers, they also hold the record for the animal that experiences the most daylight over a year. I could keep going with more examples of crazy avian migration, because it seems that everywhere you turn there's another bird undertaking some incredible journey – well, except for that grouse that just walks down a mountain, I guess that's less than remarkable. Although it may be remarkable in how unremarkable it is. Kinda done the full 360 with that one… wait, 180? As promised, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. We've seen why birds migrate – to get food and avoid the beastly winter. We've seen which birds migrate – representatives from across the board, but primarily those that live in places that experience predictably harsh seasonal changes. We've started to see how they do it, they stuff themselves silly, putting on fat that they burn during the trip. And we've also seen the different navigational strategies they deploy, from magnetic fields and landmarks to special parental guidance, and how they maximise efficiency and safety by taking less direct flight paths. But all the things we know about migration are, relatively speaking, quite recent discoveries. How we gradually learned about migration over the course of several centuries is an interesting tale, and next time that's what we're going to dive into. We've seen how birds migrate, so next we're going to find out how we learned all this. I hope you'll join me then. Is one bird, however often I release this podcast, not enough for you? Then I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to arrive in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Huh, turns out the Atlantic tuna lives both in the Gulf of Mexico and the Mediterranean. I don't know if they eat birds, but there are other fish that do, and I am not chill with that. No fish besmirches my brand!